I checked in and out of Robert and Michelle King's The Good Wife during its seven-season run on CBS. I liked the show, but I got behind, I never caught up, and the earlier seasons weren't available on streaming until I was 100-plus episodes off course. When spinoff series The Good Fight, also from creators Robert and Michelle King, premiered last year on CBS All Access, I got a fresh shot and remembered what I loved about L.A. Law and Boston Legal and Allie McBeal. Characters. Connivers, idealists, victims of circumstance, preening egotists, strivers, all bumping into each other at different angles like molecules in a balloon. The series revolves around the lawyers at a prominent black law firm in Chicago, and it's two new white attorneys, played by Christine Baranski and Rose Leslie. The show has a political point of view, but it doesn't come in preachy monologues or just desserts for the villains. The show comments on race, sex, money, media, and power in ways that are more driven by personalities and with more of a bite. Season 2 premieres Sunday, March 4 on CBS All Access. In this scene from Season 1, Luca, a young lawyer played by Cush Jumbo, attends a party thrown by the parents of her wealthy federal prosecutor boyfriend, played by Justin Bartha. She's black. He's white. And the Chicago liberal elite at the nearly all-white party treat Luca like a visiting dignitary from a foreign country. Very nice to meet you, Luca. Uh, you too, Mr. Lepatelli. The Root is a great online magazine. I have it on Google Alert. Please don't judge me by this evening. <laughs> Too late. Hmm. Luca, hello. There you are. <laughs> you have to settle a debate for me. Come on. <clears throat> Here we are, everybody. Finally, the debate. Now, African-Americans liked Bernie Sanders, am I right? Especially the young ones. And they would have outvoted Hillary if it weren't for the southern states. Do you agree, Luca? I don't really have an but opinion. That is not the question. The question is the arts. All else fails without the arts. Magdalena, please. Do you know Jay-Z? Would you excuse me for a second? Do you need something, Luca? No, just a drink. Well, I have an idea for the show that I think would be great for CBS All Access and great for representation. Have, have you considered Klingon lawyers? <laughs> we are talking crossover. Yes. <laughs> well, you know... Uh, the star of that show started in Good Wife. Um, she was a uh, an assistant to both uh, Diane, uh, no, to Juliana Margulies' character and to Matt Zuckery's character. She was kind of uh, uh, doing double duty, and she was wonderful. She was in, I think, like fourteen episodes or something. But uh, so it's good to see her now taking command. That's she has her that own assistant, Sonequa. That's Sonequa Martin Green. You're talking about that's exactly, yeah. yeah. Right. Well, that's great. How and I did see recently that Amazon has picked up the series for some European markets for Prime. Ha, did season one get carriage globally, or are there some parts of the world that have not even seen season one yet? That's a very good question. I think some uh, parts of the world have not seen season one, but I think in the major markets, it's there. Well, I mean, what's your thoughts about how well the series travels? Have you heard a lot of comments internationally? 
Well, we have uh, British actors who were home during break and they got raves because for one thing, it was just being broadcast for free over there. So a lot of their friends and family were watching it. And apparently, uh, as, as they were telling us, it was a huge hit. For us, it's a kind of weird because you went from network audiences, which are, you know, eight to tw 10 million. Um, and then you're going down to what all access is, which is still in the building stage. So you're always trying to kind of basically figure out what the saturation is. feels like the saturation got deeper once it went on iTunes. And I think the Amazon Prime channel aspect will bring in more people, too. Well, and not to get too deep into the distribution weeds, but Amazon uh, uh, now has a channel for CBS All Access that it did not have when the first season aired. So your distribution outlets have opened up quite a bit, even since the first season aired. Exactly. We're very enthusiastic about that. I mean, because one of the things the show wants to be is very contemporary to the moment. And so it's difficult when, I mean, you're loving that people are catching up even with The Good Wife four years later, but it's a way to track what the Obama years were like. And, you know, the, the start of Bitcoin, for example, we did an episode about Bitcoin. Bitcoin was $6 per at that point. So we would oh, have wow. been very good to- I hope you bought some Bitcoin. We did, not, did not buy a single Bitcoin if we'd only thought to give the uh, writers Bitcoins for Christmas instead of whatever we <laughs> I know. They the blankets very we, happy. The, the blankets or T-shirts we gave them would probably not stand up as well as the $8,000 that a Bitcoin is worth now. The one thing I've seen the first two episodes of season two, one thing I was really anxious to see is whether you would blow up some new stuff in the opening <laughs> credits. And I was really glad to see that you did. Can you talk a little bit about how you shoot those scenes? Uh, there's a there's our uh, visual effects house in L.A. who, who worked with us for in Good Wife for for years. It's called Barnstorm. And we Barnstorm had the idea of uh, for the opening credits dropping things that were like porcelain and watching them shatter. And what I wanted to see, I love that idea, but I thought it'd be better just to blow shit up because I that's very exciting. <laughs> and also, you know, when it's streaming and you have a minute and ten second credit sequence because you have more names to pump out there, uh, you want the audience to keep watching. And one of the better ones out there, I think, right now is Man in High Castle. I just Every time I watch it, I watch that credit sequence. I think it's so good. So they, uh, we tried 2,500 frames per second. So you know that it's usually 24 frames per second is what your usual, you know, what normal motion looks like. So we went to 2,500 frames per second, but it, it all seemed just too violent and not beautiful enough. So they got a scientific technical camera that runs at 25,000 frames per second. And oh that's where you can suddenly slow the movement of an explosion down where you see the individual pieces. Now, here's the difficulty. When a shutter is moving that fast, you need to even pump more light into it or the thing will, there will be not enough light. So the state studio where they do this is 110 degrees when they're shooting because oh so much light is being pumped down on such a small surface. So do you uh, chroma in the black background or does it actually no, look yeah, like that? That is, real. that is real. In fact, the only thing that's different this year is the TVs were blowing up are actually on bars that then we erased. Uh, but uh, the black background is all real because look, the whole description of this was you're start it and think you're watching 
masterpiece theater, you know, where <laughs> With the, the music, yeah, objects are like, oh my god, I'm so going to sleep. These objects are so lost, so uh, boring, and then they just start blowing up, and that just seemed in slow motion, and that just it was such a fun idea, and we had so much fun going back this year. Not only is showing some of the explosions we didn't show last year, but then blowing up more stuff. The only one I didn't think worked out as well is we had a uh, like a dresser that exploded, and it was just so big. I think you see you do see a glimpse of it in there, but it's not in the same black void we were hoping. Uh, the trick of it is actually that it's lit so hot that the items, some of them, were starting to melt. Like computer, oh, yeah. the plastic on computers was so it was. Uh, and also, you were always in danger of a, of a premature explosion because of the heat, too. Well, and they must be mounted in some way, because like when the wine bottle explodes, the glass doesn't fly away. It must be mounted somehow. It is uh, It is actually set to explode outward to the side instead of up. Oh, and what, OK. Strangely, if you kept running that, you would see it. it's a very kind of sad implosion as the top. Kind of, kind of has nothing to support it anymore, and then just kind of falls in on itself. Well, and the music is also going from this very, I don't know, flutes or whatever they are at the beginning to this chaos and this like tribal screaming by the end. Do you apply some particular metaphorical meaning to that? That this is here's the thing, David Buckley, who's our composer. Uh, we've always, since season five of The Good Wife, have kind of used the template of classical music because we don't, first of all, we think you can create anxiousness with music, but also keep an edge of comedy when it's classical for some reason without it being like ABC, um, you know, congratulating itself for doing something funny. We hated that kind of music. Uh, so here it was like going 1812 overture and it was supposed to start, you know, very much masterpiece theater and then just... The choir, the, I think we always described it to each other, is they just start cannibalizing each other. It becomes walking dead and they start screaming at each other. Uh, we tried this year using swear words with a choir chorus, but in fact, it just got so, it's got so unmusical. Cause, so that 1812 is a better example of cannon fire. There, you know, there's some of the choirs yelling at each other. It's, it's, it's very violent. One of the ideas of the show coming from the the end of the previous show to the beginning of this one is that the world has kind of gone to hell. Things are out of control. And with a show that's already has over the top elements and over the top characters, how did you approach doing that? You were already in a sort of a heightened world to start with. Well, well, I mean, we started with the idea of, I mean, to our mind, these are very real people. I mean, we've known Diane Lockhart now for years, and she is, we've established her as a very political person, as clearly left-leaning. So we're leaning into the idea of how does she process the craziness that comes hourly over her phone you know, regarding the news, and that is is nuts. And how how does she cope with it? Yeah, I mean, one of the things this year is that I would say the psychological disintegration of Diane, but that it's not done as tragedy. Huh. I don't know how those that sounds paradoxical, but there's there's comedy in the insanity this year. In that 
where um, we're not only appreciating the uh, the panic of Democrats and liberals and progressives, but also slightly satirizing to it at the same time. So Diane finds herself microdosing. And so sometime over the course of the year, you know, not in a way that you go out, go soft focus with it or anything. You're not sure whether she's seeing is just the way the world is absurd or is she really accenting it by seeing something that's not there. Uh, like in the uh, uh, office across the way from our office, she sees these two people who are wearing Trump masks who will be seen in different states, either dancing or having sex or things like that. And to us, it's it's like, OK, it's clearly there. But is Diane kind of is that really happening or is that something even she sometimes isn't sure. So anyway, I think it's that because we moved into the psychological state of Diane, it I think places the absurdity within the possibility of it not being real. On the other hand, every day you read the news, you realize this stuff is more and more real. The show is political without being not sure what the right words would be. The show is political without being didactic or without being preachy. Is that something? And I, I the two of you, I gather, are politically minded. Is that something you feel like you have to restrain to not put didactic or preachy words in people's mouths? Or, or does the show that you see what naturally comes out? Uh, it's more natural than not, in part because didactic becomes earnest and boring and very hard to watch. And that's not a show we're interested in either seeing or making. It's also a reacting reaction to law shows as they used to exist, or in our mind, what you were reacting about, which is Usually it's about the lawyer who gives the best speech wins in those shows. And we just thought that's just untrue to reality. I think, you know, if you gave one of those speeches in an actual courtroom, you might be shut down by the judge or the jury would just say, what the hell was that? I mean, that's I'm following the facts or what I think is the best story. So I'd always be felt better to treat lawyers as almost like con men in heists, uh, people running a heist. How do you win over a jury? And that's not always with the truth. And that's not always with moral indignity. That's not over with, it's not always with progressive values. And also there's a real, we're trying to avoid the tendency, I think modern shows have of preaching to the choir. Um, we satirize, uh, there's a show within the show that we did over the course of The Good Wife called A Darkness at Noon, which was this. Um, it's uh, like a cable-like crime show. Yeah, it's it's like the bad Breaking Bads that came after Breaking Bad. And so this year we bring it back because the showrunner felt inspired, the showrunner of, Break, of Darkness at Noon, who's on our show, uh, <laughs> feels inspired uh, <laughs> to do a prequel. So he has it at back and you see glimpses of it in this behind the scenes way. And you realize he's just taking lines from Trump and putting them in this uh, cop's mouth. And he's, he's denying that it's based on Trump, but it's like so many of these showrunners are really preaching to their audience exactly what they know their audience wants to hear. And, you know, there's no honor in that, you know, and there's they, they pat themselves on the back. But, you know, what does that do? It's just, uh, you know, you'll find the same thing in the South. If you go into a church, um, you know, a preacher is going to say exactly what uh, the uh, congregants want to hear. 
So why is it any different when liberals do it? So anyway, that's a, that's a long-winded answer. Cut that one up in any way. <laughs> well, I think an interesting example of how you deal with a, a political or social issue without always constantly referencing the, the political and social nature of it is putting these two white characters, the Christine Baranski and Rose Leslie characters, in a black law firm. And sometimes that causes, you know, characters to make observations or say, what, you know, why are these two white people in this firm? And then other times it's not really an issue. I mean, when the Luca character who's black is dating a white lawyer, nobody comments on that. I don't, I don't recall a single reference to that in the first season. So sometimes it's an issue and sometimes it's not, which is kind of the way it is in the, in the, you know, in the world. Yeah. And, um, the only thing I'd add to that is, um, there is an acknowledgement of race and racism, but what's more interesting to us to us is not the obvious racism of you know obviously what's going on now, um, but kind of the there's a there's a kind of a soft liberal racism uh, about um, that is also about definitely identifying racial identities and seeing their differences there, even when it's about talking about microaggressions and things like that. There's still a, a hyper awareness of racial differences that sometimes is just as bad. Um, maybe not just as bad, it's but not, I'm sorry, not just as bad, but uh, is in but, the arena of some of that badness. And it's worth pointing out because fewer people are shining a light on it. Well, maybe talk about that in terms of the party scene in season one when everyone is emphasizing their black solidarity with Luca. Do you know the scene I'm talking about? When the, the, the one one guy says he subscribes to Google alerts to some no, I, black... Uh, and there he, he he's, uh, keeps checking on roots every oh, day. Oh, that's right, that's right. Online. And uh, tell yeah, me about—I mean, uh, tell me about that scene, writing writing that scene and setting that up. <laughs> well, first of all, one is always very lucky if you have a comic actor like Andrea Martin who can sell the humor of it. Yeah, I mean, it was it was clearly about liberal or progressive whites who pat themselves on the back for being enlightened, and usually, you know, as ever since Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, it's. Uh, it's very much the idea of, okay, when a, a black man is dating a white woman, or in this case, the reverse, that the worry is, is racism will creep in that they won't want this relationship. But this is <laughs> what creeps Luca out, Luca played by the wonderful Kush Jumbo, is that they embrace it and are thrilled by it. But you also get a sense there's some political incentive behind it, which is He's going to run for office, and it looks good in the de Blasio way when there's an interracial couple. So they're trying to show how enlightened they are, but they keep bringing Luca over and saying, okay, why did the blacks not vote for Hillary? Why did they embrace Bernie? And, you know, so there's – they keep trying to make her the spokeswoman <laughs> for the whole race. So somebody, I mean, I, somebody asks her if she knows Jay-Z completely yeah. with a straight face. That had to be I, a fun I, day in the writer's room or, or a fun day on set. <laughs> that was a fun scene, but I think it's slightly subtle. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, part of one of the reasons we do that is it's just funny. I mean, it's uh, it doesn't hit the obvious notes. Actually, there was a wonderful scene in Atlanta uh, that was similar, that was similarly about uh, 
uh, you know, a, a white man kind of embracing, uh, I think he was either married or dating someone who's African-American. But anyway, there was that. I think it's just funny when you see the usual uh, pointed fingers about racism pointing in a different direction. You have this great universe of how many seasons did The Good Wife run? Seven? Seven. So you've got this great universe of, of recurring characters that you've got access to, uh, to, to to pull into your show. How much planning do you have to do to, to be able to do that? I mean, uh, to have someone like Matthew Perry back on the show, that I mean, you can't just plug in a different character if he's not available, right? You're exactly right. So it's always that is the biggest struggle or one of the biggest struggles of both Good Fight and Good Wife, which is scheduling, because we have no call on these people. And we've been fortunate enough to get such wonderful guest actors that they're very much in demand. So it seems like it's a few functions, one of which is Mark Sachs, our casting director, who's wonderful. Brooke Kennedy, who is our uh, producing director. Uh, and that the ability to basically move schedules around because if someone's in a play, you can only work with them during the day before curtain. And then the room and us having to rewrite a script almost from the start again because an actor falls through and we have to go with another actor. Uh, and so here's the thing. You can't put Mamie Goomer's lines who plays uh, Nancy Crozier, who's kind of this faux innocence who uses her supposed innocence on a judge. You can't put her lines into Patty Nyholm, who's played by Martha Plimpton's voice, because Martha Plimpton is much more calculated, much more like a Ben Hecht kind of Rosalind Russell uh, character who uses her pregnancy and her children's to to get ahead. They both use soft power, but you, their voices are not interchangeable. So you're starting over again. And then the dilemma of the character can't be interchangeable too. You have to start over. So it really is tough. I mean, you hit on, we laughed because you hit on one of the hardest things I would say about the writing of the show. Well, and Carrie Preston is a big example of that. I mean, I, that character is not the same character without Carrie Preston and you can't invent a new character that's like that one. So that, that whole story doesn't really make sense without her. That's exactly right. So, you know, we try as early as we know that we're going to need an actor, you know, we try to secure them. But again, schedules change, people fall out. It's a, it's a bit of a juggle. So like Carrie Preston, we have in one episode this year, and we would have wanted her to more, but she's on claws. And so she's being anked in another direction. So, I mean, you just, the difficulties you try to find, it's like having a very big orchestra. And you try to find the instrument that supports the through line of the music at that moment, if that makes sense. But you are pointing out something that we love so much about the show, which is this huge ensemble of guest actors. Uh, When we started The Good Fight, it was a real question, do we continue to set the show in Chicago? Or since we film in New York... Do we say, okay, this new firm is in New York so we can use actual locations? And the reason we set it in Chicago again was so that we could have access 
to all those characters that we created, because otherwise it doesn't make sense that everybody suddenly is popping up in New York. Well, and you've also got the consideration that it's a brand new show and you don't want to create barriers to entry for people who have not seen the previous show. And I've only seen parts of the previous show, so I'm probably missing some things, but I don't feel like I, I... I don't feel like I don't know what's going on when it becomes obvious that Matthew Perry has been on the show before. Yeah. That's great because that's deliberate. Yeah, I mean, we always treat it a bit like how you can pick up a Doonesbury cartoon midstream because the first panel hopefully resets those people who haven't kind of been with it. We don't love recaps. We did one at the top of this season, but we don't love recaps because it's a very ugly art form or it, it's stupid to call it an art. It's a, it's, it's always, even on the best show you're, or like Mad Men or, uh, Sopranos, there was always something ugly about that formatting at the beginning. So anyway, we have try to avoid that and try to build into the narrative, something that will always update you on where you are. I feel like about a third of my questions in these interviews come from seeing scenes that I can't imagine what they looked like on the page and how that translated to act, you know, from your head to the page to, to actually shooting and, and editing it. And one of those scenes, I think, in, in, in this series for me has been the one with Rose Leslie and Paul Guilfoyle, when she, uh, who plays her father on the series, when she goes to see him in jail and she is telegraphing to him that she knows that her mother, his wife, is having an affair, but the other two people in the room do not understand that that's what she's telegraphing. And so much of it is done with the way you cut back and forth between the two of them and the way you manipulate the silences. And I, I don't understand how that works on the page for someone to pick that up and read it and get what that scene is about. How does that work? Well, first of all, thank you for these questions because I think it is the underappreciated thing about the new TV, this whatever platinum age or whatever you want to call it, which is I think often features have given up on cinema and cinema is not spectacle. They have embraced spectacle, but they, what I think sometimes I neglect is the possibility of images telling story and not just dialogue. So what we love about that scene is it is done on looks. What it, it's a situation where both people involved in the conversation, father and daughter, have to bring their lawyers to the meeting. So there's this comedy of these people who, who keep saying, just treat us like flies on the wall. And it's like, how can they have this conversation that is not only personal and emotionally packed because it's about a wife cheating on her husband, but also has repercussions that are um, political and legal. Um, on the page, there is a lot more action blocks uh, than dialogue often. And so what you do is try to tell the director of that, of that episode, the looks are very important. And then we have what are called tone meetings, all showrunners do, where we sit down with the director and we basically say, look, on the set, Everybody reads the dialogue before you start uh, blocking the scene. Okay, it's the, the AD says, let's read the words. And what that means is doesn't mean read the action block. It means read the dialogue. The problem is it's the director's responsibility then to read before he blocks or she blocks what the action block is saying. Because what are important is how you cover it to get those looks. Um, because sometimes 
with TV, it's a it's a choice of what what coverage you can risk. Coverage being the smaller shots uh, that kind of concentrate on one character's face. Um, and you're always balancing off time and how many shots you can get. So that I think is essential that we get the directors on board that it's about the looks often more than the dialogue because the editing pattern is often not about who's talking, it's about who's listening. And that goes back to Good Wife because Juliana Margulies' character was often the lowest one on the totem pole in the room. So everybody else was talking, but what made the scene personal is you were on her face as she was listening. So that I think is the key is that the, um, the director translate what is not dialogue heavy information somehow into the images and then he builds it or she builds it in the editing room and then we do a last cut, which is kind of often retelling the story that was in our minds when we wrote it, if that all makes. Again, long-winded answers, cut it up any way you see fit. <laughs> well, you hear about film directors talking about shooting a lot of coverage and shooting scenes that they don't necessarily think will make their way into the uh, film and, and finding the film in post. And you don't have the luxury of doing that at all on a 22 episode season. Do you have more latitude on a 10 episode season for, for finding the episode in post? No, I, I mean, that is, that is never the aim. I mean, it's just not a schedule that allows for that. Occasionally one is forced to, but that's, uh, one never starts out that way. So there's there's good example. We did a, a season, the fifth season, that touched on the NSA. And it touched on these guys who were in their listening booths who were kind of low level. It was almost like readers at a film company, but they were listeners who would listen to all the gobs and gobs of information that was coming in. And the episode started where you were just getting their camaraderie and you were realizing they were listening to um, – Diane Lockhart or uh, Juliana Margulies' character and all that. But we found it didn't work. So that was one where we had to find a new opening in the editing room. Often that can happen where you don't have an opening that hits. So in this episode, uh, the second episode of the fifth season, it started with some visuals that you didn't see people. You just heard people talking casually about watching, you know, Team America and saying the words uh, weapons of mass destruction or sarin gas. And therefore, they they bump a flag in the NSA, even though they're just normal, non-terroristic citizens. So we want it to. That was the case where we found it in the editing room. But you find moments. You can't rebuild the whole episode in the editing room the way a, mo a feature can. You did reshoot parts of the first episode of the first season because of the, the Trump election, right? It, that opening scene you shot later. That's correct. We uh, we added that later. Have you done uh, Have you done that any more since of going back and doing pickups that that respond to things that are happening in the news? Uh, we're mid season and uh, we're not under. We're we probably will. We haven't had it to do it yet. Oh, you're still, still you're still shooting. Yeah, we're still yes. shooting and oh, okay. we're still editing. And I think there are things we're going to go back and shoot because it will change. We have an episode about impeachment um, of the president. And it's not an actual – it's about um, our law firm being considered by the Democratic committee if they win in November, the midterms, wanting to prosecute impeachment. And therefore, they're kind of auditioning law firms to help them prosecute it. So our law firm is one of them. And 
So it's an it's a real episode that plays into the idea, both satirically because it's about democratic expectations, but also about all the ways one could possibly improve uh, pursue impeachment as both a political and as a legal matter. And I think it might be behind the curve, so we may have to go reshoot one thing or two. Because even what's happened since we finished shooting it, like last two weeks ago. Which is a week or so ago. Yeah, there's been things in the Mueller investigation we probably want to involve in it. You've had a full cycle of 10 episodes, and now you're on your second cycle of 10 episodes after making a show that was 22 episodes a season. Do you miss the pace? Do you miss the extra episodes? Do you like the 10 episode better? The uh, Our second season is, in fact, 13 episodes. Oh, okay. And uh, I will say emphatically, I do not miss 22. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, having fewer episodes and being able to focus more on them is heaven. Also, to get a life. I mean, it was for seven years. There, there was really the bottom line is um, the sh- we only had basically a month off um, because you were always the first one through the door and the last one out the door because of post production. So anyway, look, you don't want to hear us bitch about it, but. Well, this show is probably less, I don't know how to say this, this show is probably more like a longer series from the standpoint that you have a procedural element that a lot of 10 episode, 13 episode orders don't have. And so it probably feels more like your previous show than a a brand new concept would that you're just making as a 10 hour um, um, series that, that doesn't have the procedural parts of it. Did, how did you feel about, I mean, it's easy to do in a courtroom show cause there's always more cases, but how did you feel about continuing that, that pace? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fun template to pursue because we're human beings who react to the news around us. And you'll like this year with me too, or with Harvey Weinstein stuff, you want it to have the ability to have the show comment, or even the Aziz Asari situation with Grace and Babe uh, online magazine. That didn't pre-exist before this year, but it did pop up during the year, and you want it, You were kind of drawn to do an episode about it because you wanted to comment on it. You can't do it on everything because you know it has a half-life and it will be over by the time you air. But clearly Me Too and Time's Up and and especially the Aziza Sorry, which might be more of a gray area of this, um, is going to be around. And so that, I think, is the attraction of doing it, whether it's hard we have a very good writer's room who likes to argue everything, not just what they want to get for lunch, but argue through, you know, uh, you know, what are the limits of uh, Time's Up? What are, when does feminism, you know, the the angst about second wave fem- feminism, all, all those issues are just thrilling to hear the writer's room t- talk about. So I think that is always fun. And then what the 13 episodes does is we probably have a stronger arc than usual, a stronger serialized through line. And this year, it's kill all lawyers. It's um, it's um, it basically is a way to have little short stories that add up to a bigger effect. So there's hate to compare it to Milan Kundera, but Milan Kundera, like in Laughable Loves, or there's a tenant or Book of Laughter. I'm forgetting. There's a tendency of the short stories in it to create 
a novelistic effect when they're put together without comparing themselves at all. That is just a, we like the format of that. It's attractive. I'm, I'm almost positive. That's the first Milan Kundera reference on this podcast. So I, 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 I really appreciate you bringing that up. You sure that Modern Family hasn't talked about it? <laughs> I enjoy talking to you. I, 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 I like the show a lot. It has a, a an engagement that feels real, but that's actually not homework to watch. And I really appreciate that in a, a TV show that, that you understand that it's, it's entertainment that, that is also engaging. And I, I think a, a lot of shows that I watch right now are forgetting the, uh, the entertainment part. And, uh, <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> nice I hope you like the rest of the season.